Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Calling all reuse businesses, community groups, and activists. The Reusees returns this May, and applications are now open. Once again, we'll be presenting the annual Reuse Awards live at Green Biz's Circularity 24 conference in Chicago. The Reusees champions the heroes making reuse a reality for people across the U.S. and Canada by uplifting their stories and providing them with meaningful support. This year, we're excited to offer more awards and bigger prizes. There will now be three Activist of the Year winners, as well as three Community of the Year winners, who will each receive a $2,500 award to support their work. And all Most Innovative Reuse Company finalists will all receive an all-access pass to attend and participate in Circularity 24. Applications are open from now through February 29th. Submit your online application today or share your favorite reuse activist, community group, or business at thereusies.org. That's T-H-E-R-E-U-S-I-E-S dot org. As the legislative season in the U.S. ramps up, it's been promising to see increased momentum behind extended producer responsibility, deposit return systems, and other policies involving reuse. But even as these policies are being developed, the definitions of reuse are still a bit all over the place, which is concerning as now, just as these topics are gaining traction, is the time to align on how we define reusable packaging and to differentiate between returnable and refillable packaging in the policy context. Thankfully, many in the movement are on it on this topic and working hard to forward clear and effective definitions. So in this episode, we recast the February 15th, 2024 recording of Indisposable Live, Upstream's live stream series, where we hear from Zero Waste Europe's Nathan DeFore on the recommendations outlined in their recent Packaging Refill versus Packaging Prevention report, and from Oceana's Matt Littlejohn about some of the potential pitfalls of vague Use definitions. Upstream's policy director, Sydney Harris, moderates this important panel discussion and explains the different types of reuse, some key do's and don'ts within the policy landscape, as well as Upstream's own recommended definition of reuse, all in hopes of moving us forward in passing truly effective reuse policy. So buckle in for a really rich conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am Sydney Harris, Upstream's Policy Director, and I'm thrilled to be hosting our first Indisposable Live of 2024. It is going to be a nerdy one, so I hope you're ready for that. Before inviting our guest panelists onto the screen, I'm going to briefly set the table for our discussion. But first, we've got a lot of folks tuning in today. So if you have any questions during today's program, be sure to submit them using the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and we'll do our best to address them after the panel discussion. So our very nerdy topic today is really a back to basics concept on how to define reuse in the context of state or federal policy. Thanks to the tireless work of the reuse movement, which includes many of you, there is growing recognition that reuse is a win-win. It's great for the planet, it's great for communities, and it's great for businesses too. 
And because of this growing recognition, state and federal policymakers are finally not just talking about recycling anymore. They are talking about reuse. Reuse is included in some way in all four of the packaging EPR laws that have passed in the U.S. since 2021, and it's also mentioned in two of the three needs assessment laws that passed in the U.S. last year. And we're starting to see reuse incorporated into upgrades to existing deposit return systems, or DRS. Special shout out to my home state of Maine for institutionalizing ongoing funding for beverage container reuse. With all this excitement and activity, Upstream published principles for how best to incorporate reuse into EPR and DRS legislation last spring. You can read more of the details behind those on our website, and I think those are being linked in the chat right now. One of these principles is to properly define reuse. We all know definitions matter in policy, but I feel like this one is really urgent. And here is why, as you can see on the screen, for those of you who can see the slides, um, these are just some definitions we've seen in the last few years. And no, you're not supposed to be able to read all these words. And for those who are tuning in via the podcast or can't see the slides, I'm just showing a stress slide that is just filled to the brim with definitions of reuse for real legislation. Just in case anyone is combing through these slides later, I want to say I'm not showing these particular definitions as bad examples. In fact, there's good language in these. I'm simply making the point here that there's a lot of definitions out there for reuse and they are not consistent. To address that, a working group of folks within our Reuse Solutions Network put their heads together over many months to grapple with this question of how to properly define reuse. They landed on this very nice summary for a broad general purpose. A reusable product or packaging is designed to be refillable or returnable and is part of a system that achieves multiple uses, equitable access, reduced waste, and net benefits for the health of all beings and the planet. I like that this distinguishes between refillable and returnable packaging, and it specifies that either way there needs to be a system for reuse that actually achieves results. But this is a little too broad to use directly in an EPR or DRS bill, so we have to dig a little bit deeper. Similar discussions on how to properly define reusable packaging have been going on around the world, and I want to mention, as you'll hear more about from one of our guests today, Zero Waste Europe and others have been doing some good thinking on the proper definitions for reuse. They published a report last year that went in depth on the distinction between refillable versus returnable packaging. Although in the EU, they've actually said it's either reusable or refillable. So only packaging that we're calling returnable would count as reuse. The core idea here is that refillable packaging is owned by consumers, while reusable or returnable packaging is owned by producers or a third party. And I also appreciate that in Europe, they've separately defined reuse systems in this report. This all builds on publications from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. By now, you've probably all seen EMF's diagram with the four quadrants of reuse business models refill at home or on the go and return from home or on the go. The distinction is pretty clear here, right down the middle. We have refill as one model and return as another. So what the heck is the difference? Here is what Upstream recommends. And I am gonna read these for folks who can't see the slides. 
Returnable reusable packaging is designed to be recirculated multiple times for the same or similar purpose in its original format in a system for reuse and is owned by producers or a third party and returned to producers or a third party after each use. On the other hand, refillable packaging is designed to be refilled by consumers multiple times for the same or similar purpose in its original format and is sold or provided to consumers once for the duration of its usable life. So that was a lot. We'll, we'll let you all digest that for a sec. For those of you who are thinking, why are you saying returnable, reusable? Why can't you just say returnable? That's a fair question. This is an attempt to avoid confusion with other types of returnables, like returnable cans in a DRS, which are returnable, but of course not reusable. We know this is a change, especially for those of you who are used to saying refillable for certain containers that actually are reused by brand owners. But the change is important, and I'm going to explain why. Refillables, as we've defined them today, are familiar to us all by this point. These are business models that include bringing your container to a bulk aisle or also emerging business models that fall under EMF's refill at home quadrant, like purchasing a refillable bottle and buying concentrate to refill it with. To be clear, these are great business models for many products and they probably do result in waste prevention. But we also hear some common challenges about scaling these types of refill models. Refill at home models require continuous purchasing on the part of the consumer. And usually that purchasing involves single-use disposable packaging. BYO and refill at home both require pretty significant behavior change as well on the part of consumers. And bulk aisles, as we hear from retailers, can take up space and they can make a mess. Overall, it's tough to guarantee waste reduction with these models, and I think this is the most important piece. They don't ultimately replace their single-use alternatives. I can still go to the bulk aisle and grab a plastic bag or a paper bag that is single-use to fill my you know, cereal or what have you. I'll also, here's my like public shame. I'll confess that I've had a soda stream since around 2012, but I still have a fridge full of cans. I use both. In short, this isn't stopping me or other consumers from buying disposables. On the other hand, returnables, as we've defined them today, eliminate many of these challenges. I'm not saying they don't come with some challenges of their own, but they more closely map to our current patterns of consumption and sales because they can mimic single-use packaging. In addition, they involve industrial cleaning rather than at-home cleaning, which can alleviate some health code concerns. Ultimately, the biggest advantage of returnables, in my view, is that they take most, not all, but most of the work away from consumers and put it back into the hands of producers. That means they can fully replace disposable packaging, which is a stronger guarantee of waste prevention. The greatest challenge with scaling returnable packaging is infrastructure because returnable packaging is part of a system as we've just defined it. That system includes reverse logistics, cleaning, repackaging, and recirculation. Building a whole new system is hard. And we also have the added layer of complexity that in asking big brands to participate in this system, we're asking competitors to share one infrastructure. This actually, though, isn't that crazy an idea when you think about the fact that packages brands put on the market today are already processed through a shared infrastructure for recycling and disposal. 
the way to retrofit this existing shared system so that it can focus on returnables is through policy like EPR and DRS that creates a mechanism for brands to share financial and operational responsibility for their packaging. If we want EPR and DRS to enable the returnable reusable systems of the future, then we need to distinguish between returnables and refillables in these bills. So a couple notes on that. First of all, it is best practice not to exempt either form of reusable packaging from these bills. So we want returnables and refillables included in EPR and DRS bills. This allows more flexibility in the programs to ensure reuse systems are set up responsibly and transparently. And instead of being exempt, we can have returnables and refillables pay lower fees to incentivize their adoption. To further incentivize returnables over refillables and reward producers who choose returnables because those are more challenging to implement but have a greater environmental benefit, we should be giving an even greater incentive for returnable packaging, aka even lower fees, than for refillables. Another crucial point is that EPR and DRS laws should distinguish between returnable and refillable packaging in their performance targets. If we allow refillables and returnables to all count toward one overarching reuse target, then we are likely to see most or all of our efforts going to refillables rather than returnables. Once we have a separate target for returnable packaging, it should also be accompanied by a minimum return rate to ensure the system actually performs. And of course, there should be time allowed for the system to achieve that rate. Ideally, this is no less than 90% after a few years to optimize the environmental benefits of reuse. Lastly, it's best practice to ensure transparency through reporting in these systems, of course. And so if we're distinguishing between return and refill, then these should be reported on separately. Okay, so that was a lot. Let's recap. Yes to reuse in EPR and DRS, and you can see Upstream's principles for more details. When defining reuse in these bills, please distinguish between returnable and refillable packaging, and then emphasize returnables with incentives and enforceable targets to ensure these policies enable the transition to a true reuse economy. At the end of the day, refillables and returnables are very different business models, so it's time that we start treating them accordingly. With that, I am excited to welcome our two guest panelists on screen and jump into our discussion. So please welcome Matt Littlejohn, Senior Vice President at Oceana, and Nathan Dufour, Reuse Systems Manager at Zero Waste Europe. And I'm going to take these slides off the screen. Awesome. Welcome, Nathan and Matt. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, hope that discussion was uh, on par with your nerdiness and mine. <laughs> um, let's just start with each of your perspectives on these definitions. Uh, let's go to Nathan first. Tell us about your experience, you know, putting that report uh, together for, for Zero Waste Europe and the RSVP project. And, and, you know, what was your experience wrangling those definitions and, and how have they been kind of coming up in EU policy? Thank you very much, Sine. Hello, everyone uh, from Europe, from Brussels. Uh, where I'm sitting today. Um, it's uh, it's lovely to be here. Um, you've said it all, Sydney, really. Uh, like you have said so much good stuff uh, already that I'm, uh, I'm just thinking now, what is it I, I need to put the emphasis on? Uh, but basically, like sharing a bit of our story um, as Serious Europe, 
is it's it's been a, a, quite a while that we have been uh, involved in all those discussions as how to uh, deal with uh, with um, with waste generally speaking, and then in in most recent years with a higher even much bigger emphasis on packaging and pack packaging waste because it has become such a problem. Just to give you uh, an idea, like in the next by 2030 in in the EU alone, um, packaging and packaging waste is is, is supposed to raise by 19 percent, so one nine. Which is which is enormous com considering the amount of waste that we have already um, there that we don't manage to deal with properly um, uh, that end up in in the streets and the rivers and, and and everything all burned and with the consequences that that we know as well so so we need to find solutions and we need to get very serious about those solutions and it's not it's like it's it's a very urgent issue so. How do we get there? Um, basically, the work on definitions is very much important. Uh, why? Because it sets the tone, because we share a common language uh, on, on what is it that we need to address. Um, and, and that's the basis for just basic communication. Uh, uh, businesses understand that very well. If you don't agree on things, uh, even in a very precise way, you put that in a contract because otherwise you speak about different languages and you don't you don't manage to do business together. Um, and the same applies as well when, when you look at legislation and you want things to be enforced properly um, and for the, for the benefit of the environment and, and the people of this planet, then you need strong definitions. I would argue it's not enough, but it's a very strong start. And um, this is why as well we decided to invest a lot of effort at the time of um, renegotiating. Um, and, and first it was a consultation process, broad consultation process at the EU level to define what would be the next uh, legislative document on packaging, packaging waste uh, at the EU level. We have what we call a single market between the 28 uh, and now 27 uh, countries uh, of the European Union, which is difficult to put in place and you need strong rules and strong definitions. Now, we've defined things and now we are bit by bit uh, getting to the end of that negotiation phase. And, uh, and it seems the three involved institutions um, at the EU level are landing on the main aspects which are in that slide that you presented earlier, basically. So there is a diff difference between refill, which is more a product that is uh, consumer-owned with the effect of being used as a packaging um, and, and, and needs to be refilled, but it doesn't it doesn't clarify whether it needs to be, a, whether it is actually a single use or, or multi-use uh, uh, container. Uh, so that's one thing that is very important as well to understand, uh, for instance, and doesn't clarify either how do you measure that compared to a return system uh, reuse, reusable packaging, which is part of the of the reuse system, um, which was shown in that slide, and which which explained that there is a need for um, um, the ex an existing infrastructure that facilitates uh, uh, the return of of the packaging uh, with a reverse logistics. That you need also strong incentives uh, for the return, and then and then also that you need um, as as part of those incentives, you need things such as uh, uh, deposit return schemes, for instance, or, or any sort of uh, new digital tool that could make the job uh, as well, and that could help to report to policymakers and make sure that the system is implemented properly. Um, and, and basically, we strongly support that. Why? Uh, because um, we are environmental NGOs, and we see the, the dramatic context we are in, and we want 
businesses uh, in particular um, to understand that when they take decisions, it has to fit with that context and, and they need to look at the environment before before implementing something. Uh, and we we really expect and push policymakers to take on that job to really enforce that properly and make sure that businesses respect that because it's for the, the sake for the common good. So, so that's very important. Um, this being said, like what we've been doing as well as part of um, our work on making a reuse uh, um, a living reality in Europe um, is also to complement those definitions with a set of essential requirements, things that everyone should agree should agree upon in order to harmonize the way um, reuse is being implemented. And um, it's a matter of transparency, it's a matter of predictability also for investors uh, to step in and understand that, okay, we will be putting our money in systems that are actually uh, really delivering. Uh, from an environmental viewpoint, we know that it's delivering. And we know as well that because it's it's well calibrated and, and well tailored, that we, we will get some economic benefits um, out of it as well. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. I'm not presenting the like the the, the complementary tools that we uh, developed, but maybe that would be part of the the conversation uh, today. Yeah, I'm definitely going to follow up on those. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan and Matt. Let's go to you. Your role is corporate advocacy. Uh, I'm really curious to know what models of refill or return per our definitions you've seen in your work, either globally or in the U.S. And you know, if you could speak to how these these distinctions are, are related to these models that you've seen. Yeah, sure. So it's great to be here and it's great to nerd out on these definitions and this category, one of my favorite things to do. Um, we're focused. Uh, so what, one thing I want to highlight for the audience is that um, it, outside of the US and Europe, except for Germany, there are very large existing uh, reasonable returnable systems that exist. It's often not well known. Um, Fourteen percent of Coca-Cola's current volume are in uh, returnable packaging. Um, so, in the beer companies, both AB InBev and Heineken have about a third of their volume in reusable packaging. So, there are very, very large existing systems that exist um, and that use terminology around these topics. They are also so it's really good that this is happening. That there's an effort to to make the definitions clearer. Typically in the um, beverage, non-alcoholic beverage world, they call what we're calling returnables, refillables. Uh, so if you talk to people in that world, you'll get confused for that reason. However, in Spanish, they are called returnables. So returnables is actually widely used as well. Um, the thing to keep in mind is most of the volume is in Latin America. It's in Africa. For beer, it's also in Southeast Asia. And again, Germany is a center for, uh, they have a big uh, reuse system in place. Um, so the definitions are quite important for our work. Our work is to get these companies to commit to increase their share of, um, of these systems. Uh, so we played a role in getting Coke to make its initial 25% commitment. And now what we're doing is we're pushing the Coke system, which means pushing the bottler companies that actually bottle the beverages and distribute them to make commitments to actually have high high levels of returnable um, uh, products. Our challenge is really to get people to understand that these systems exist and to push the companies to actually fund them and do the things to market them and to push them. So I encourage 
policymakers who are doing this in the U.S. to think about this. Um, the reason for this is these companies are coming into the U.S. It's just the beginning. So one of the biggest bottlers in the world is called Archer Continental. They're the second biggest refillable bottler in the Coca-Cola system, just after Coca-Cola FEMSA. They're based in Monterey, Mexico. They have launched a trial effort you're probably not aware of in Texas. They're the also the bottler in Texas. So they've launched a program in El Paso, Texas, where they offer returnable bottles at restaurants to the population there. That is, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who are from Mexico originally and are familiar with the system. So they've launched this product uh, in the next in the last couple of years, and they're expanding it. It's working well. They are uh, now off also offering this system in San Antonio, Texas. Um, there's no reason why, as you think about this in your state. You cannot get these companies to, to bring the system into the U.S. Um, they do it at very, very large scale elsewhere in the world. It's just a CapEx system. It's, it's, they know how to do it. They can do it very easily and very well. So I really encourage everyone to think about that. The last thing I'll say real quickly is that I'm, the definitions are quite important because we also have been focused on Pepsi which has purposely mixed up these two categories of definitions in their commitment. So Pepsi has a commitment. So Coke's commitment is to increase their, uh, their refillable packaging to 25% share by 2030, which they are not on track to hit. So we're, we're pushing them on that in that regard. Pepsi has a goal to go from 10% to 20% of reusable packaging by 2030. That call is inclusive of they actually have refillable systems like Coke does in, in Chile and Colombia and other countries, but they also include SodaStream in that commitment, you know, which is, you know, is, is problematic because it's not really clear to your illustration, Sydney, how having a SodaStream machine actually reduces plastic waste, you know, and so they're they're using theoretical you know, kind of how much how much use you could have in the machine to factor in the commitment. So it's really important as you think about these businesses uh, and getting them to do the right thing to actually have these definitions in place because there was definitely already some mixing going on there. But anyway, so I'll leave it with that for the this first comment. That's so interesting. Thanks, Matt. Both of you kind of mentioned something that I want to pick up on, and I'm I, you know I'm hearing a lot of. of from both of you about uh, beverages, but in my mind, this is bigger. I mean, it's inclusive of beverages and, and also beyond, right? So thinking either with a beverage hat on, and I hope some of our friends in the beverage sector are watching today, but also beyond to you know any other sort of uh, consumer packaging. With this distinction, returnable versus refillable, is there a way to measure waste reduction from refillable packaging, the kind that consumers own, the kind that we refill at home, the kind that I like bring my own container to a to a bulk aisle because I don't know of one really. And I think we could estimate it, but I think that's where we get into some fuzzy territory in terms of enforcement and targets and policy. So, but I'm just curious, have either of you encountered a way or do you know of a way where, you know, companies are successfully tracking or, or, or governments are measuring waste reduction from refill? I do not. And I think that they are Pepsi again. I think we've asked them for the data and it's not clear what they're using. Gotcha. So I'm quite suspicious of these companies. I'm sure it's possible, but 
but I, I do not know of them at this point. Yeah, so, same reply on, on my side. And I know of efforts to work on uh, how to measure um, the two. And now there is a confusion uh, that is being um, encouraged to actually mix both, like how to measure both, which doesn't doesn't make sense really. And that's why we have those definitions uh, as well. Um, and and it's it's very important that we understand as well that, for instance, when uh, you promote bring your own, which is great. Um, and I'm talking about the way we work in, in 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 Europe. I'll stop there. I would have said global north, but but uh, but to be a bit more nuanced, I'll, I'll say about uh, about Europe. You can promote bring your own, like in Germany, they've been doing it for for more than a decade. It doesn't it doesn't really show that uh, it has had a massive influence uh, in terms of uh, of reduction of uh, of waste in the in in that view. So. That's why when you explained before the, the the importance of shifting the burden towards the producers, I think it's very much important because that's where you can actually have a clearer view and control things, how they are being implemented and so on, and for the greater good. If you leave the whole focus on the consumers, then you will never, never, never really get a, a full picture of uh, of what is being uh, worked out. Um, and then blaming the consumers is a bit easy, I think. Uh, and we know that and don't need to, to get back to that. But uh but that's that's a, an important um, consideration, I think. Hundred percent, and I think it also gets at this common misconception that we hear all the time in the U.S. that we are, you know, consumers aren't ready for reuse, or we can't go to reuse yet because thinking returnable packaging yet because because consumers might not adopt it, and there's so much behavior change needed. To me, this is so important because the way you get around that is you just use returnable packaging that eliminates the need for all of that behavior change. Yes, they have to return, consumers have to return the package, but they don't have to carry around 20 empty jars in their bag, and they don't have to clean it at home every time, and they don't have to do all these things that we expect them to with a refill model. So I think it's a little ironic when we hear concerns about whether consumers are ready. I think there's a world in the future in which I could buy products in returnable packaging and I don't even necessarily know that it's being reused because it's part of a system that just functions really efficiently. Um, on that note, let's talk about uh, let's just, I, I want to make, I have, I have so many questions I want to ask. I want to make uh, one thing just really crystal clear for our audience, because I think we've implied this and I've implied it in my presentation, but let's just, let's just call it out. Why would a company want to conflate refill and reuse and return? Why, why would, why would they want to do that? I'll let either of you jump in. I mean, Starbucks is doing this now, right, with the bring a cup, viral cup program. And Nathan can speak to it because it's in Europe. They actually do more viral cup. I know in California they've started it. Um, I don't, I think that's out of confusion, really, in that instance. I don't know them that well, but I think it's, it's just people are trying to address this issue. And I think it creates issues, right? Like you're saying, because I think the, you know, our perspective is always, how much plastic does this eliminate, right? And the, the thing is, it's like you said before, it's hard to measure with a refillable system where you bring your own container, what that impact is. So, um, but yeah, my initial answer. Fair. Anything you want to add, Nathan? 
Yes, I I don't want to presume of the intent, uh, the underlying intent, whether it is a a, a wrong one or not. But um, but I think like in a way, I mean, Zero Europe is part of um, of a global movement uh, with the European chapter of uh, of Gaia, um, and um, and we've had to compose with. Different views on on what is reuse and uh, how to push it at the global level and so on. And indeed, there are differences between because there are cultural differences. Um, there are consumer um, habits that are very much different between uh, different between um, those you can find in Asia, for instance, and 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 some in in some European countries. Even within Europe, we have differences, and that's the sort of complexity I'm dealing with as when leading the reuse Vanguard project and trying to create the conditions for a large uh, uptake of reusables in the takeaway sector in different cities. Um, so we we need to incorporate that complexity and have universal principles, and then on the other side, you sort of like the big brands will say they localize. So you allow for local adaptations to the local context and so on. But this being said, you still need a strong set of universal um, conditions. And um, on one hand, we've been very much as your wasters, we've been uh, pushing for bring your own as well, saying, okay, this is an important measure, a prevention uh, measure, but this is not enough because of the shifting the burden type of narrative that I just mentioned before. Um, but it's it's it can be there. Uh, it's it should be encouraged. This possibly the less wasteful way if it's like if indeed you bring your own um, uh, refillable bottle and you use it on a constant basis you develop a strong habit with it it's it's better than any sort of uh, refill like um, a reuse system at the end of the day um, if, if you do it properly but um, but indeed you you need to make sure that when the consumer arrives and doesn't have its own uh, container that there is an option that is there to that and that still prevents waste uh, to the maximum or optimizes to the best extent the use of resources um, and materials. So, so it can be complementary, but uh, not to the expense of, uh, of reuse working in as a system. Love that because I think we've had some questions in the Q&A about how we can make room for both of these in EPR and DRS policy. And I think a looking at them as complementary actions makes a lot of sense. And I'll just editorialize a bit. I mean, I think in addition to confusion, there's probably just the practical reality that it's easier and cheaper if I'm a single company to try a BYO or a refill option versus trying to uh, go toward a full returnable option on my own. That's why we need policies like EPR and DRS to group producers together and share that responsibility and build a shared infrastructure. Because of course, we can't expect every company to build their own returnable packaging infrastructure individually. I think that would be impossible. So I think that is also playing into the why we see a little bit more momentum and emphasis being put on refill when we want it to go toward return. Just wanted to jump in and, and also reacting to what Matt said, because I didn't say that in, in my part, but uh, but there are very strong examples of, of what can be achieved at scale. Um, mm -hmm. And indeed, he mentioned the German system, and we've been working quite closely with them because it's, 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 it's something that is well established. Um, and that that can really share, uh, and that has been sharing lots of 
of good practices and key learnings from how they set up the, the pool systems with hundreds of brands collaborating together around um, uh, standardized bottles um, and uh, and with a clear division of uh, of cost and, and so on. So all that is very much uh, useful to learn, but it might be a bit sort of uh, impressive, like difficult, out of reach for, for many who are just uh, entering the field and don't know how, where to start. So indeed, we need to push those who know and who have been doing it for many years to keep going and scale up and, and get back to a full re-internalization of the cost um, uh, and not externalizing uh, to, to your societies. Um, but on the other side, we need also to accompany those that are a bit lost in the dark and, and they, they they want to to find a way to to get there. Um, and there are ways to do that, um, and there are better ways to do that than favoring only bring your own and so on. Um, but in order to do that, you need to work with ecosystems. You need to bring together the right stakeholders. You need to emphasize the the, the fact that it's a highly collaborative process um, to get from from basically zero to to something that works and works well in at the level of a city, for instance, or a district to start with. Um, so this the the whole work that we've been doing with our partners in, the, in in different countries in Europe, and now we see it's it's being launched. The implementation work is being launched, and uh, and we we really um, hope to be able to share that blueprint. With have been building and consolidated by the end of, of this year and early uh, or early 2025 with some good implementation guidelines as well for, for cities. Oh, that's great. I'm sure everybody will be very excited to see that. Cindy, I have a couple of thoughts too. Is it okay? Thanks. I don't know we have a time limitation. But so I, no, you're good. Um, just two points to add in to what Nathan was saying, you were saying. So I, I one thing to think about between what we're calling defining refill and returnable is that it can be expensive to bring your own container, right? If you're going to go buy a Stanley, uh, you know, uh, water bottle, that costs some money, and it's not available to everybody. The nice thing about large returnable systems is the reason why they still exist is because they are the cheapest way to buy the product. So the companies that use them use them for price packaging uh, reasons because they can offer a lower cost, uh, you know, product to their consumers. That's why it exists in Latin America. And so the neat thing about these systems is it makes it available to everybody, regardless of your income status, right? Because the cost of the container is no longer on the individual. Um, so that's a benefit of the system. If you're concerned about this aspect of things, it it's a, makes it more available to everybody who wants to use it. The second point I want to make is that it is great to have systems like the German system, but the I think that policymakers and people on the call should be hard larger businesses can do this, right? The trucks have to come back to the plant, right? They're already making two trips. They often discount it. They just need to buy washing machines. There are limited, you know, you have to store the inventory, but this is doable, right? These companies can do this, right? They can create these systems. This is not, it's happening all over the place. So, you know, of course, make it work, but don't accept that they can't do this. They can't make this work because these systems exist and the solutions are, are, you know, are, 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 are around and, and are able to be implemented. It's just a question of, you know, getting the capital to do it. And the benefit of it is when you have the systems in place, right? They are assets that the companies can have in their books. So that's anyway, just put that out there. Yes mm -hmm. to these systems, but don't be shy because we often hear we can't afford to do it. And this comes from very large multi-billion dollar companies. They can afford to do it. And I think many other companies could afford to do it as well. Great point. Um, and 
kind of to build off of what both of you were saying and to play off of some of the questions we're getting in the Q&A, Nathan, you or you in your first comment, you mentioned some, you know, some some requirements complementary to strong definitions, some requirements in policy that can help harmonize implementation. We're getting questions in the Q&A about how to track and measure return and refill. And, and we already talked about how it's challenging to measure and track refill, but we can certainly measure and track return and return rates. I'm curious, you know, how does everything we talked about in these distinctions between return and refill play into policy implementation? So how are we enforcing? How are we tracking? What is counting toward, you know, a reuse or a return target? How are you seeing that play out or how should that play out in policy? Yes, there are big questions around that. Um, and still a lot of work to do when, when you think about shifting an entire country, for instance, an entire market uh, to these things. Um, but again, in the case of Germany, for instance, they've been having the reuse target or like in, in the, that case, they call it more like a, it's, yeah, it's a re reuse target for like a mailwax for several ways and the, making sure that the, they have um, um, that 70 percent um goes into uh, multi-ways packaging as they call it in in German. Um now they're not there they used to be there uh but then it can, went down uh because of a lack of enforcement and because of loopholes and and stuff like that. Um but um but yeah just to say it it exists and it it, it is being implemented and we can learn from those experiences uh at the, at the country level for instance. Um Things that you need to, to track are, in our view, because we've set those minimum performance indicators, as we call them, as part of the blueprint. So there is in, indeed the return rate is very much important. Um, the rotation um, cycles before the end of life. And then and then what we call also the, and that's more from a business viewpoint as well, to make it viable from that viewpoint, is the rotation time. So, so the, the period that you have, the time uh, that you have between the moment the, the packaging enters, uh, the market is being used and then and then back, brought back and 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 um, getting ready for the next cycle. Um, and so that timeline needs to be as short as possible to make it as as efficient and vi financially viable as 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 possible as one. Um, and then we we've come up with um, with. Also considerations in terms of, you know, when it comes to the return rates, for instance, like maybe maybe you don't need to get um, uh, immediately to a 97, 98%, which is, which is uh, uh, very much needed if you want it to be environmentally sound in the long run. Uh, also economically speaking, you need that packaging to return and be used. Uh, but, um, but maybe you can start at 90% uh after one year for instance you know you need to make that sort of you need to accommodate for the log logistical complexity as well uh, and i'm thinking here in the case of takeaway especially mm -hmm. uh which is a, a more volatile type of uh, environment mm -hmm. as well with multiple um point of sales and 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 um, um at times hectic sort of uh, behaviors as well to to being inc incorporated into the system um and then yeah we define a whole set of uh, of measures to sort of uh, go in that direction, um, and um, yeah, I'll I'll stop here. I don't know if I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I think so. So, how 
do, do either of you, this is kind of an interesting question we got in the Q&A, do either of you know of existing platforms or systems that companies are already using to track their return rates and their return programs that are operating at scale? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, they, you know, they're tracking all the sales, right? In Coca-Cola, for example, in um, countries in Latin America, you know, can sell near, you know, up to 30, 40% of the sales are in reasonable. So they, they, um, they track all the sales, right? So they track, so they, you know, they track the, the sale at the store and they track it coming back. And they're also using digital uh, products, uh, digital wallets to kind of make it easier to you know, pay the deposit. They're actually kind of banking in a way where they, you know, they give you a credit. So you have a deposit to spend. But anyway, they're tracking the thing constantly, mm-hmm. right? Of course. Does that answer your question? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I mean, and you, have, and you have different ways of tracking. Um, right. If if it gets down to um, I don't know, reusable food container, for instance, you can you can track it with a regular deposit and inventory type of uh, you know thinking. But then, but then you can also track it with QR codes um, or other types of uh, digital type of, uh, of tracking system and that's very precise you know exactly it just you just need to design the the the, the it system properly but uh, but it's it's nothing nothing too tricky really yeah the beautiful thing about these systems is that like they are often you know the bottles in a large system sorry to always talk about beverage but it could be the case for no, please. packaging it's a they are a very large asset on the books right so when you design it that way, like the company has financial incentives to track that product, right? Because they don't, it costs the money to replace it. So they want to, unlike a single use system where, you know, it's just waste right away. Like they, they actually get financial benefit from these bottles, you know, both in terms of not having to replace them, but also they can, they can borrow against it, right? It's, it's an asset, just like the plants. So it's important to think that way. It's not a burden like uh, other, you know, when you think about recycling, it's not just the cost, it's, that, it's an asset as well too. Great. Um, one interesting question we got in the chat is, what is the recommended role, do you think, of a local or regional municipality uh, to support returnable systems? The questioner says, it seems like the majority of reuse ordinances at the local level focus on food service wear, things like cups, plates, takeout. Of course, that makes sense, right? Because Food service can be very localized, but are there examples of ordinances that would allow a city or county to affect change with producers, you know, at a bigger scale with other types of packaging? Yeah, I have a. I would defer to but I, I have a example. Um, it's it's actually a, a national law that we played a role in passing, but it could definitely take place at the county municipal level, and that's because you know in municipal levels there are requirements in terms of like restaurants in terms of what packaging you can use can you use clamshell containers no and in chile what we did is uh our team with our allies we uh as part of the plastics law there there's a requirement that retailers of a certain size have a third of their uh you know of the products in display being reusable packaging so you could you know potentially have that requirement at you know different levels of government as well too as a way to incent refillable packaging because one of the one of the problems uh, with selling these systems are are often the retailers right because retailers have to often unless you have like a, like the German system or the Ontario beer system where you have these center you know kind of 
uh, return points. If you're going to have the retail establishments bring the you know, bring the containers back, and they have to be incented to do so or required to do so. So I think it's something to think about as well. I think generally speaking, it's very important for local authorities to to get involved, really, to to look out for answers. Um, there are different scenarios um, that we've been uh, uh, coming across and and um, upon which we've been defining our relationship with with cities as well, uh, depending on, depending on where they start as well, because um, um, it's very important to have also clear plans in terms of prevention and reuse. Uh, start engaging, defining a strategy, long term vision, the right level of ambition, um, and then and then start moving in that direction, conveying uh, the right stakeholders as well, supporting the local businesses that are trying to set up um, the, um, the 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 right the right systems that they they can definitely see will have an, an impact on reducing the waste that is uh, also being littered and and, and sound for instance for instance and generating costs for for cities from that viewpoint. So so that strong pulling factors for them to to get active really um and uh and they are yeah they, they play a, a key role uh we we've been uh working with with municipalities and cities for for quite a long time uh at zero europe and and we we've taken that in different directions de depending on on the the level of uh, um readiness of those cities so as i said drafting the the prevention uh plans with them uh incorporating the right uh measures um to um, to prevent waste in in the first place uh working with them so that they start they start being a bit more active also in terms of um of um the way they design their um their tenders um as well um like um you can see there are many examples now you can see um the city of paris uh, has been doing quite a, a, a big effort in in trying to set up its own strategy to exit single-use plastics uh, and taken at large. So it's not just plastic, plastic. It's also anything that has plastic in it, um, which is which is really great um, because it's definitely part of the problem. Um, and the substitution of packaging should not be, become a new a new problem. Um, so taking a systemic change uh, approach is very much needed. And then and then supporting the right the right projects, those that are connecting with uh, with others in the, uh, in terms of um, of working with the the right um, uh, setup. Uh, like I mentioned before, if you if you don't have uh, possibilities to uh, to actually monitor the way the system is being uh, is being worked, then uh, then maybe it is not a good a good idea to to work with that sort of system. Um, so therefore, you need to privilege the systems that are uh, incorporating a reverse logistics, the right incentives, and so on and so forth. And then they can do a great deal in terms of communicating, uh, promoting uh, that, putting uh, some public spaces available in case of the development of shared infrastructure uh, with uh, uh, collection points in the public spaces. This, these are things that we are seeing being developed now in Europe. Um, I can mention the city of Oris, which is which is uh, piloting now, um, not uh, not long from uh, from now. There will be also the um, a city in uh, in uh, the Netherlands, uh, Rotterdam, moving in that direction uh, in Belgium as well in Paris. So um, yeah. 
this is uh, very encouraging um, and uh, and cities are showing actually great leadership. And uh, it's great to talk to those leaders and, and hear how committed they are. Um, and despite all the difficulties, obviously, of being part of a more global context. And uh, as you said, it's not always easy to deal with uh, small retailers and the ways that is generated at that level and uh, or bigger ones also. Yeah. So cities who are listening, even though we're talking about state and federal policy, there's lots for you to do. Uh, please join our government reuse forum if you're in the U.S. and Canada and not in there already. Um, and I also just want to add, you know, in the U.S. especially, municipal voices are some of the strongest, most valuable advocates for EPR and DRS policy. So we need you in those conversations uh, as well. We have a question from one of the uh, audience members that I think is really just a good opportunity for us to just recap and bring this in for a bit of a landing here. What are we actually recommending on policy? So the question is long and I'm going to paraphrase, but to confirm, based on all this discussion that we've had, we clearly agree there is a strong distinction between refill models and return models. And we have talked about having those as complementary systems that both have some sort of a place in an EPR or DRS policy. I have mentioned having separate performance targets for refill and return, and there's extra things you need to measure with return, like return rates and how fast are we achieving those rates. So with all of that said, should refill have a performance target by itself? Should we be expecting a minimum percentage of refillable or, you know, including BYO or refill at home in an EPR policy or a DRS policy? Or should it just be kind of, you can do this as well, but there's no target, but make sure you do return? Like, how are we actually wanting these targets established in legislation and holding companies accountable for these? Uh, I agree, Sydney, with what you said. I think that, you know, I think a lot of it could be, like, you know, also focus on the definition and the outputs that you want to measure, right? That um, if you're going to have a refillable system and the goal of the policy in question is to reduce plastic, they should demonstrate that they reduce plastic with this system. They can't just say that they have the system. Mm -hmm. That's the benefit of, you know, a returnable system as you define it, that, that you know, you can demonstrate that they're going to reduce a lot of plastic. You know, we did a report that if there was a if the non-alcoholic beverage uh, system globally actually increased the share of uh, returnable uh, packaging by ten percent, you know, they would eliminate over one trillion single-use bottles and cups, you know, from circulation. And you know, hundreds of millions of these were not uh, hundreds of billions of these were not getting into the oceans. So, but the, the point there is that to me, it's always important to focus on the output. You know. That's that's referenced in the legislation. You know, they need to demonstrate, have transparency, demonstrate they're actually doing the thing that you want them to do, not that just, it, that it just sounds good. If we just focus on uh, what is the um, the core objective, we want to reduce waste, right, and prevent from generating waste in the first place. So you need to set the tone as well and say, okay, this is by how much we want to to reduce. 
So you have a reduction target that is strongly set and uh, and then you come up with measures to get there. And now it's widely recognized um, besides by uh, maybe uh, the blind ones I would call them, but uh, that reuse is is actually actually very much important to to get to reduce the amount of waste that you you have when packaging is needed. Um, reuse is definitely uh, the way to go in a wide variety of sectors already. Uh, there are lots of solutions existing and uh, very often the only thing that is lacking is the, the right incentives, political and financial incentives for them to scale up. Um, but there is a lot to be done on that front. And I do believe that reuse should be privileged of a uh, refill. But this being said, bring your own should be encouraged widely. Um, let's make sure that uh, consumers can and are uh, allowed to bring their own uh, their own packaging um, or con container. Sorry, I'd like to get back to the definition question, but the container that it can that can be refilled. I'm quoting the city of Paris, for instance, that have been pushing restaurants and cafes to accept people who are bringing their own bottles uh, to to refill them. Um, and uh, and it's spreading quite nicely. So that's uh, these are the sort of, or sort of steps that should be encouraged. But it's m way more difficult to to monitor and report on. So we definitely encourage the setting up of systems uh, and strong targets for for reuse systems because these are the ones we get that can report from that we can get real real data and monitor the implementation and and really correlate that. Impl the implementation of strong risk systems with the prevention gap that we are setting for ourselves. Love that. That's a good way to to end and yeah to confirm for for that person who asked that question because they had more in there. Yes, if a producer stops stocking individually contained items and instead shifts to a bulk refill station, that is nice. But unless you can demonstrate waste reduction and that consumers are not bringing or offered disposable containers, that should not be counting toward a reuse or return target in EPR or DRS legislation. We are at time. So I want to close with a huge thank you to you both, Matt and Nathan, for joining and to everyone who turned tuned in today. Um, we will be sharing a recording along with links to all the resources that we mentioned in the next few days. So stay tuned. You should receive a short survey in the chat. And after you leave the session, we encourage you to use that survey link to let us know what you think and feel free to share what topics you want us to cover in future live streams. They don't all have to be this wonky, uh, but sometimes we got to go there. I also want to plug Upstream's annual award show for the reuse movement, The Reusees 2024, which is going to be presented at Green Business Circularity Conference in May. For those who aren't familiar, the Reusees champions the heroes making reuse a reality across the U.S. and Canada by uplifting their stories and providing them with meaningful support. And this year brings new enhancements to the program, very exciting, including some big prizes like a $2,500 award to Activists and Community of the Year winners and an all-access pass for most innovative reuse company finalists to attend uh, and participate in Circularity 24. The deadline for applications to the reusees is February 29, which is fast approaching. So learn more and apply online at thereusees.org. And as always, be sure to stay connected on news and upcoming events by visiting upstreamsolutions.org, signing up for our newsletter, or following us on social. Our team works really hard on curating valuable resources and information to help support all of the great work that you are doing. Wishing everyone a happy, healthy February, and thank you so much again for joining. 
And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode, as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.